1. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. A couple of people. Greg's got it. While they're getting Bibles to you, there's a couple of things I forgot to mention. One of them was the, uh, raise your hand if you want a Bible so they can see. Um, one of them was that uh, the cost for the shipping of the boxes have gone up. Usually we put a check for $7 in there. They've gone up to $9 now this time. And so um, it just costs more to ship them. And so don't forget to put that in, in the box with that. And then another thing I forgot to mention is that Go Team is going out this Friday evening at 7.30. We meet at the Discovery Center parking lot. We pray, then we go and we share our faith uh, down there. And then uh, third thing I forgot to mention is I was really blessed... Um, Trisha Schetzel has a fig tree at her house and she gave me four figs this past week it was heavenly it was like oh now they're they're only about though but they were they were so good Trisha they were so good and so I didn't think you can grow fig trees in in, in Springfield and so that was just I wanted to say a special thank you thank you Trisha for that because it was it was awesome anyway okay first Peter chapter one Look in verses 17 through 21. Peter's writing, and he says, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The title of my study this morning is The Fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in this place, to know that you are here in our presence. You are here in our midst. And it's your desire to speak through our hearts to teach us. And so we want to be open to all that you have for us. We thank you for the sweet time of worship that we could spend, uh, the time of fellowship together, Lord. And now bless the study, we pray. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, or not born again, they're not saved, we pray, Lord, you'd especially touch their heart today as well. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's really fitting that Peter talks about blood and fear in this section of Scripture, seeing how this is the time of year that we see, man, we see the yard decorations all around, you know, set out to frighten people. Around the corner from my house, <clears throat> excuse me, they had put together this huge spider web. And it goes from the floor to from the ground, the lawn, all the way to 20 feet into their tree. And this thing is huge. But, man, that's big. Well, the next day, they have this spider, probably the size of, I don't know, it's huge. They stick that up there. They go, wow, okay, it's kind of impressive, you know. So then they put this dummy in the spider web on the thing with the spider coming towards them. Like, okay, that, that's really the top of it. So, man, they, they've done it. So then, then they put a cat, a big old cat behind the spider, but coming towards the web. They think, okay, they're just over the top with all of that. But you see, they, they know, and, and, and you see the time of year, things that, that freak people out, things that, that make people afraid. We all know what it's like to have fear, you know, to be afraid of something, to be gripped by fear. My son, Matthew, was telling me that he went to a corn maze, and, and which they have, you know, you can go through the maze, but they actually have actors behind there that with, 
chainsaws to come out and scare you as you're walking through the maze. And I'm thinking, and you pay for this? You, you pay to, to be scared like this? But we know what that sensation is like when that shiver runs down your spine, your mouth goes dry, the, the hair stands up in the back of your neck. Maybe it was because your life was in danger and there was fear of death. Maybe it was some other problem, some phobia that you have. There's so many phobias today. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. There's a agoraphobia, the fear of crowds. The arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. I found this one. Arachnophobia, which is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Doesn't it sound like that? Arachnophobia. How about ecclesiophobia, the fear of church? And my favorite, phobiaphobia, which is a fear of phobias. <laughs> People actually have these fears. Sometimes you can have giliophobia, the fear of laughter. Certainly can't be my jokes. You must have the, the fear of laughter. But, but see, far too often, we are afraid of the wrong things in life. And we're not afraid of the right things. Or maybe I should say the right one in life. We don't fear God. It was Oswald Sanders who said, the only God-ordained fear is the fear of God. And if we fear Him, we don't have to fear anyone or anything else. Peter puts it this way in verse 17, that we're to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear. Now, the fear that Peter's talking about is not necessarily the, the paralyzing dread or terror, but rather the kind of fear you have knowing that you must give an account for your life. One of the best definitions I found of, heard of fearing the Lord is a wholesome dread of displeasing Him. But you look around in our society, there is no fear of the Lord. There's no fear of God today. In fact, we even see it in the churches across America. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of hell. There's no fear of retribution. And I think that's why we have such a high divorce rate. That's why our young people are falling into such immorality. That's why we have mega churches all over the world now and they preach an easy gospel. They preach nothing that will offend. They preach a soft message. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of God in, in people's homes. Folks are living together in fornication and adultery and thinking nothing of it. And among the thousands of people living this way, there's not one word about sin and therefore there's no fear of God in the house. And instead, what we see is the abuse of the grace of God. I see people living in sin because they're not being convicted by a message about the fear of God. If they were, then they would understand Proverbs 16.6, which says, In mercy and truth atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord one departs from evil. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, I want to talk about this, that this morning. And if you're taking notes, I want to give you five reasons why we should fear the Lord. Number one, the first reason we should fear God is because He is our Father. Look at verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Peter, first of all, says, if you call on the Father. The idea here is that if we call on the Father... He hears us. He's ready to respond. He's ready to answer when you call out to Him. I love the fact that when we call on our Father, we don't get an automated response. Hi, I'm God. I, I'm not able to take your call right now, but your call is important to me, you know, and I will answer it in the order that it's been received. To speed up your call, if it's a health issue, press 1. If it's a financial issue, press 2. And for all of this, you stay in the line and I'll be with you shortly. God doesn't do that. 
In fact, we're told in Jeremiah 33, 3, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So any believer that calls on the Father knows that, that you'll get an answer. You'll get his full attention. Because as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, God is our Father, and He has adopted us as His children through the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're to reverence Him as our Father does. We should have a wholesome dread of displeasing Him, which springs from a just view and a real love of the divine character of God. See, as we look at, at God as our Father, we see His character. Now, God as our Father, there should be a family resemblance. We should take on the same characteristics as our Heavenly Father. We looked at this last time, how Peter said that God is holy. And he said, be holy. The Lord says, be holy as I am holy. It's a command to be set apart, different from the world, taking on the characteristics of the Father. You take Him at His word. Recently, my daughter, Lord, she's been looking lately at purchasing a new car. And we found this red SUV that was reasonably priced. And, and Joey, my son, and I were having this conversation with Laura about the car, and she says to Joey, I could never buy a red car. The paint oxidizes and cops pull over red cars. <clears throat> and Joey says, well, where did you hear that from? And she says, Dad. <laughs> did I really say that? I mean, it must have been a passing comment I made years ago, you know. But, but, but in the same way, as God is our Father, His words should stick with us like glue because what He says is true. I don't really know if the newer paint, you know, oxidizes. And, and my theory on red cars being pulled over is that more red cars are sports cars, and so they probably drive them faster anyway. And so, so I don't know. But the point is this. God is our Father, and as our Father, He knows exactly what's best for us. And, and so we should fear, be in awe, and reverence to our Father, and show honor and respect by living for Him, by obeying His Word. Now, also as God is our Father, we should fear the Lord because it's our Father that brings in the discipline, right? We don't always like that aspect about our Father, do we? We like the, the love about our Father. We like seeing He's a good, good Father, which He is. But when it comes to discipline, we don't like that. Maybe you remember being a child and being disciplined, and your dad or your mom said, this is for your own good, or, or this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You know, I often thought when I heard that, why don't we just skip the whole hurt thing, and none of us will be hurt, and we'll, it'll be great. Never helped my situation any. I was still disciplined. But listen to Hebrews 12, verse 7 through 11 in the New Living Translation. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, Shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, but doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I mean, think about this. The God of the universe, the God that loves you so much that in all of His goodness, and all of his love, and all of his power, and all of his concern for the entire world at this time, some 7.6 billion people, he takes the time to care about you and even bring about the rod of correction, his divine discipline in our lives when we need it. Recently I read a devotion from Charles Spurgeon that really, I never looked at it this way, and it summed it up pretty well. Let me read it to you. He says this, and I quote, You deserve trouble. 
Yes, my dear brethren, but there is not enough merit in all the Christians put together to deserve such a good thing as the loving rebuke of our Heavenly Father. Perhaps you can't see that. You cannot think that a trouble can come to you as a real blessing in the covenant. But I know that the rod of the covenant is as much the gift of grace as the blood of the covenant. It is not a matter of merit. It is given to us because we need it. But I question whether we were ever so good as to deserve it. We were never able to get up to so high a standard as to deserve so rich, so gracious a providence as this covenant blessing, the rod of our chastening God. Wow. That struck me that, 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 that we even don't deserve to be chastened by God. But because of his love for us, he does that. Remember, the writer of Hebrews tells us, remember that God is treating you as his own children. What a blessing that is. But, but also that should prompt some fear. But it's a kind of fear, like you remember when your mom would say, wait until your father gets home. We knew dad loved you. But you also knew that the rod would come down if you stepped too far out of line. In the same way, we need to have that healthy respect and reverence and fear of not wanting to do anything that would displease him and force his hand of discipline or correction in our lives. Now this brings us to our second reason why we should fear God. Number one, he is our father. Number two, he will judge the world. Look at verse 17 again. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. In other words, we should fear the Lord because every person is going to be judged. Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. No one is going to escape some sort of judgment. Every person will come to that day when they will stand all alone in a private interview with God. However, there are two different types of judgments that the Bible speaks of. There's number one, the great white throne judgment that we don't want to be a part of. And number two, the Bema Seat judgment that we do want to be a part of. It's interesting, our society is quite open to hearing about how, you know, God is is, is love and how much He takes care of us. But as soon as we begin to start talking about uh, our Father in terms of the one who is a judge, then all of a sudden people become very uncomfortable. And listen, if you don't know Christ, then you should be. There should be a fear. Not a wholesome fear of displeasing God, but a fearful, frightening thought that you will indeed stand before God and have to give an account for your life. It's called the great white throne judgment. And it's the final judgment of God set out for all unbelievers. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12. It says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And verse 15 goes on to say, And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, the final judgment should strike fear and terror within us because it is the most fearful, dreaded, and terrorizing experience imaginable. In fact, the human mind cannot even even picture how awful and frightening it will be to be judged by God and cut off from God for all eternity. Listen, God is just as holy now as He was in the Old Testament. He hasn't changed. He hates sin today just as much as He did before the Lord Jesus died. And He must deal with it in the same way as He did before He died. God has not changed His attitude about sin. Sin must be judged. Now you can escape that judgment by giving your life to Jesus Christ today and having your sins washed away, having them be forgiven. Or you can reject today, Christ, and have to pay for every sin you've ever committed. That's the choice that people have to make. 
one or the other. The Lord says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make, or that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Now, I've often said, and, and I agree, and, and I stand behind it, that God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves to hell by rejecting Jesus Christ and re- rejecting His offer for salvation. We're giving ourselves a death sentence. But let me say this. God will usher people to hell. God will send people to hell. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather... Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, we send ourselves there by rejecting Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it, that's where you'll end up. And Jesus will make sure, the Lord God will make sure that you'll end up there because of that. Now, that should strike fear in every unbeliever. That judgment will come. They will have to reap the consequences of their sin. Now, for us as believers... We likewise will face a judgment when we die, but, and we'll stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ. But it's a different judgment. It's called the Bema seat. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us that, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, why? That each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So this judgment is for believers only. It's not a judgment for the believer's sins. Christ fully atoned for those on the cross. The judgment is to see whether you're going to receive a reward or not. Now, when Paul says we must all appear, remember that he's writing to believers. All believers will be judged that we may receive the things done in the body. We'll be judged by the way we live this Christian life, how we have lived in these bodies down here. We go into the presence of the Lord. We'll, we'll be finished with these old bodies. Praise God. No more head colds. You know, no more, I mean, I'm, I'm ready for this thing to be gone. But see, God's going to determine how we live this life for Him, and He's going to reward us accordingly. We're going to have to report to Him. Listen, I want to have a whole bunch that I want to report, that, 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 as much as I can, to report to Him. I want to do as much for Christ as I possibly can in the time that I have left on this earth. Peter tells us in verse 17 that our Father is going to judge each man's work impartially. In other words, there's not going to be any false you know, professions before we, when we stand before God in judgment. Our work's going to show what we believe and what we stood for in this life. There'll be no excuses before the Lord. Oh, you know, Lord, I, I wanted to serve you more. I thought about serving you more, but, but you know, I had this going on, and, and, and I didn't know it was going to come to this. Listen to Proverbs twenty four twelve. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Yes, he will. That's why we need to have a healthy respect and reverence and fear of not doing anything that would displease our Father and doing all that we can to please Him. Why? Because number one, God is our Father. Number two, God will judge the world. Third reason we should fear the Lord is because this world is not our home. Again, in verse 17, Peter says, Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I love the way that, that Peter puts this. He says, Our stay here. It sounds like an ad for a hotel. You know, welcome to Travel Lodge. We hope you enjoy your stay here. Do they even have Travel Lodges anymore? I mean, I think I'm dating myself. Remember the, the bear, the sleep, sleepwalking bear, you know? And, and uh, if you guys remember it, you're dating yourselves. But my point is a hotel is supposed to be a temporary place that you're staying at. 
When you go to a hotel, it's not supposed to be permanent. What Peter is saying is this place, this earth is not our home. We're just passing through. So knowing that we could be living at any time, that we're just pilgrims, sojourners, as the Bible calls us, we should live like it. Live in the fear of not wanting to do anything that would displease the Father because in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we could be in His presence. That's why John says in 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who has the hope of, 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 of salvation, He's going to, going, going to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, want to live out the remainder of our lives in purity and holiness in the fear of displeasing our Lord. This brings us to our fourth reason why we should fear God. We should fear God because we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the big one. Look at verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, Peter wants us to understand that we should fear the Lord because we've been redeemed. Redemption is such a great word. The Greek word is apolutrosis. It means to buy a slave out of slavery in order to set them free. Man has been sold under sin and is in the bondage of sin. All one needs to do is look around and see that this is true. Man is rotten, corrupt sinner, and he cannot do anything else but sin. He's a slave to sin. But Christ came to pay the price of man's freedom to redeem mankind. That, the word redemption also was a Greek term, a technical term for paying money to set free a prisoner of war. Now, the fact that money would be spent in this transaction shows that the owner places value on that slave, places value on that prisoner of war. So the idea of the term redemption infers value. Simply put, you are precious to God. That's why God has redeemed you. Not only that, Peter tells us that we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. In other words, silver and gold, they have no redemptive value when it comes to our salvation. You know, people they like to think that, that they can buy their way into heaven. Oh, my good works, the things that I do. Oh, I gave all this money to the poor and, and look at all I, I spent on charity. Jesus had an answer for that in Matthew seven twenty one through 23 when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know that scientists have discovered what they, they say is the most precious substance in all the universe. It's very rare, used only for research purposes. It's called anti-hydrogen. Scientists claim that this form of antimatter is the costliest, costliest material to make. In 2006, Dr. Gerald Smith of Positronics Research estimated $250 million could produce 10 milligrams of this antimatter. In 1999, NASA gave a figure of $62.5 trillion per gram of this antihydrogen, or roughly $1,771 trillion per ounce. To get our mind around this substance, that that's 1,771 followed by 12 zeros per ounce. Peter's saying there is not a substance on earth, silver, gold, what's it called, anti-hydrogen, no matter how valuable it is, none of that can redeem us. There's no price. It's all worthless. Silver, gold, worthless. It will corrupt in time. You just look at old silverware. You know, it's all tarnished and all discolored. 
So he says we're not redeemed through corruptible things. Then he also says, look at verse 18. He says we're not redeemed through aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now this is something you, you'd never really hear from, from Peter, you know, uh, years earlier. Because Peter was a convinced, conservative, orthodox Jew and proud of it. And proud of the traditions of his forefathers. But the problem is sometimes you'll learn that your forefathers were wrong. No doubt in the Jewish mind, these were all well-meaning men who introduced these, these traditions, you know, intended to draw people into a deeper relationship with God. But as the years went on, the descendants forgot that these traditions were supposed to be aiding in their relationship with God. And instead, men began to worship the tradition instead of worshiping God. So that everything became a ritual. Reality was re- replaced with ritual. And we can come to a point where we get so locked in the ritual that we can be re- misled by them. There's a story I shared years ago, and I, and I like it. It's about an old country church that had recently taken on a new pastor. The new pastor that noticed that in the middle of a sermon, the whole congregation that was sitting on the left side of the church would get up and move and sit on the right side of the church. And all the people that were sitting on the right side of the church would get up and move on to the left side of the church. And, and it was kind of strange. They never spoke or acknowledged that anything was strange about it. The new pastor didn't think much of it about it the first Sunday. But then Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they kept doing it. They kept trading places. Finally, the pastor had enough. And, and he asked them, why did they do such a thing? And they all looked puzzled. They, they couldn't figure it out. The whole congregation realized they did not know why they were trading places in the middle of the service. Well, the new pastor began looking into it and he found the old church records and found that a hundred years ago, their church had one pot belly stove in the middle of the church. So the congregation would switch places halfway through so they could get warm on the other side. The old stove was gone and now the church used electric heat and they didn't stop switching places. Listen, we can be the same way. We get so locked in this ritual that we're, we're, we're misled by them. I tell you, and I've shared this before many times, the tradition I, I grew up in taught that I'm redeemed, that I will go to heaven as long as I did certain traditions. As long as I was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, as long as I received my, my first confession, that I went to the priest and confessed my sins to him, and as long as I received my, my first communion and I did the, 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 the confirmation, they call these their, the sacraments, confirming that I'm a Catholic Christian, that when I die, I will eventually get to heaven. But there'd be a stopover in purgatory, a place where, you know, Roman Catholic Church teaches that men and women will go there immediately after death to be purged even further for their sins. And if you want your loved ones to, 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 to pass away, to not spend so much time in purgatory, then you can donate a little money. They call this indulgences. You could, you could light a candle, cost a dollar, you know, for a small candle, five dollars for a big candle. I don't know if the prices have gone up nowadays, but, but I don't know what they charge. But, you know, but it was all things and traditions that maybe, maybe they started out in the right direction. But they've gone in the wrong direction. And a great many people have the idea that a man must do something to win God over to, the, to him. Oh, I've got to do this and do that to win God to me. Listen, God is trying to win you over through what Jesus Christ did, not what you can do. You and I stood under the judgment of God. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. God's never revoked that decree. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. It's a gift. We're not redeemed by silver or gold or through traditions of men. 
even though, again, those traditions may have started out pointing people to Jesus Christ, it's moved far and far away from Him. Listen, we are redeemed through one way and one way only, and it's not through silver or gold or traditions of men, but it's in verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Silver, gold, anti-hydrogen is nothing. Nothing compared to the precious blood of Jesus Christ that can save every sinner on earth if that sinner would just put his faith and trust in the Savior. Peter knew oh so well what brings salvation to the soul. He knew what Jesus accomplished on the cross for all of mankind. He knew that our redemption is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Again, here is this big man and he's using this, this word precious because then that's the best way to describe it. It's valuable. It's so for the precious blood of Christ. If there only were more preachers in our day that understood this, we would be seeing so many more lives change for Christ. Peter preached the blood of Christ. Paul preached the blood of Christ. Sadly, the blood of Christ is not preached, and it should be in churches today. The new era is to preach self-help messages instead of self-denial messages. To pre- preach Jesus is my best friend and my buddy, and, but not Jesus is my God and my Savior. But to see if He's your Savior, that means that He saved you from something. He saved us from the penalty of our sins. He saved us from hell. How did He save us? Through His precious blood that was shed. People say, well, I don't want to go to church that talks about the blood of Jesus or my sin. I don't like to think about that. It's so negative. Listen to Hebrews 9.22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. No matter what these postmodern preachers are preaching today, either your, your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus or they're not, and you'll spend eternity in hell. Paul tells, it, tells us in Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Or Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Understand what being redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ means. It means that He looks at you and He looks at me and He says, You are so valuable to me that I gave my life for you. You know, when a young man is engaged... It's not always a wise thing to take your fiancé into that jewelry store to pick out that diamond ring. Kind of a mistake because the salesman can spot you a mile away. And the first thing he's going to ask you is, how much are you willing to spend on her? How much is she worth? That's a trick question because she's standing right there and you're going, oh man, I thought this little cubic zirconia ring looked mighty fine. Uh, You know, she's saying, it's not going to happen, she says. Now, he may feel like the Hope Diamond is, is what's for the most expensive diamond in the world, estimated to be $250 million with 45 carats of a, a blue-hued gemstone, that, that, that she's worth that. But he can't even come close to that. Yet Jesus paid the ultimate price for you and for me. That's what he thinks of you. That's what he thinks of me. The very lifeblood of the Son of God, and God was willing to pay it, and Jesus was willing to go through with it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why Vance Havner, the one-time Senate to the United States chaplain, he said, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. God gave His very best. So, because we have redemption through His blood, because we know the cost involved in redeeming us, we should in turn walk in the fear of the Lord, not wanting to do anything that would displease our Lord and our Savior. 
Finally, number five, we should fear God because He is the risen and glorified Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I love that Peter keeps reminding us over and over again of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 21, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead. That word for believe is to have confidence. He says that your faith and hope are in God. Confidence that your faith, your hope is in God. See, Peter's a great apostle on hope. And hope rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and upon the fact that we serve a living Savior in whom we can be confident that just as Jesus is risen from the dead, so too our hope is in Christ. We will one day rise up as well. So we're to fear the Lord, reverence the Lord, show honor and respect for Him, and while we wait for that day which is coming soon, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Fear Him because, reverence Him and stand on Him because He's our Father, because He will judge the world, because this world is not our home, because we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, because He is the risen and glorified Christ. Listen, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, then one day we will stand before God and we will be presented holy and blameless. Why? Because it all goes back to the blood of Jesus. We've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Not some sin, not a few sins, from all sin. Listen, as we close here this morning, sin has a direct defiling effect upon a person's life. It is the world's worst and most deadly disease because it's always, always fatal. But there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from the Savior's veins that no matter how great the offense, no matter how many nor how deeply seated our sins may be, the blood cries, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, in a single moment, those who were black as hell become white as heaven. Through the application of the blood of sprinkling, for all sin disappears as soon as the blood falls on the conscience. That which the blood of bulls and of goats could not do, the blood of Jesus effectively accomplishes cleansing from all sin. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we serve the Lord because the blood is, has cleansed us. Charles Finney, powerful evangelist from the 19, 1800s, rather, the story goes that he was preaching at this great revival in Detroit, Michigan. After the service, one night a man said, I want you to come to home with me. He thought to himself, don't go, this is not good, but he went anyway. When he got to the man's house, the man locked the door behind him and pulled out a revolver from his pocket. And he said, don't be afraid, Mr. Finney, I'm not going to shoot you. I've heard you preach tonight about the Lord Jesus Christ. This revolver has killed four men. Is there any hope for a man like that? Mr. Finney replied, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The man went on, You don't understand, Mr. Finney. Down below this apartment where you are sitting, there is a saloon. A saloon. I've helped send men down the road to hell. I've helped men do, to rob their own children of food and milk. Is there any hope for a man who would run a saloon? Finley replied, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The man continued, I have been a gambler all my life. I have spent my life taking money from people illegally. 
Is there any hope for a man like that? Mr. Finney said, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The man persisted. Across the street, there is a wife that I have abused, a little girl who's disfigured. One night, I came home from gambling and drinking in a drunken stupor. The child ran to put her arms around me, and I pushed her away from me. She hit the heater and is terribly disfigured. Is there any hope for a man like that? Mr. Finney said, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Soon thereafter, Mr. Finney left. The next morning, the man stumbled across the street. He had not slept. He prayed all night. When he got into his house, he stumbled up into his room. After a little while, his wife said to the little girl, Tell your daddy it's time for breakfast. The little girl went upstairs and said, Mama says it's time for breakfast. The man said, Darling, Maggie, I don't want any breakfast this morning. She ran back downstairs and said, Mama, Daddy said he did not want any breakfast this morning, and he called me Darling. The mother said, You made a mistake. You heard him wrong. Go back up there and tell him it's time for breakfast. In a moment, the man came down and took his wife in his arms and his little girl on his knee. Oh, wife, he wept, I have sinned against you like few men have ever sinned against anyone. But last night I heard the preacher preach. I heard about Jesus and about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all my sin. You have a new husband. Daughter, you have a new daddy. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Where are you at this morning? Have you been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? We need to get back to that truth of that great old hymn written by Robert Lowry in the 1800s. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the price. And if you're here and you're not born again, let me tell you that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. Why would you wait a moment longer? Give your life to Christ this morning. Turn from your sin. Commit your life to Him. He will wash away all guilt, all shame, all sin, because He took it upon the cross for you, because He values you. He wants to have that relationship with you. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. Thank You for Your Word, because in it contains Your truth. And the power in the truth that we've looked at, Lord, is that Your Son's blood, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all of our sin. We thank You, Lord, for that. We thank you that your word says there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We can stand before you not condemned because you took upon yourself our sin and we believe that, Lord, and therefore we have hope. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here right now that is yet to come into the saving knowledge of your son Jesus Christ, that they would not wait a moment longer. That they would see their need for you. They would see the necessity to turn from their sin and turn to you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want your sin forgiven? You want to know that if you were to die today that you would not face the judgment of God, the great white throne judgment, but rather the beamer seat of Christ. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? This is just between you and the Lord. You want to commit your life to Jesus Christ today. Father, I thank you that we are believers here, Lord. And we thank you for the hope that we have. And the love, Lord, that we see in your word given to us, Lord. Help us now to walk in fear, Lord, in that awesome reverence of who you are and how great you are as we look for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, let's all stand and we'll do one last song together. Mm-hmm.